Hey guys, welcome back to uh, the podcast. We're here with a question and answer edition on Word and Testimony this afternoon. Um, we've already tried this once, and I wandered. I didn't like the way that it went, so we started over. Um, hopefully, um, hopefully we don't have to do it again. Uh, I've got Dan and Sydney with me again. Um, it's so good to have them back. Uh, so many of you have told me that the last episode I did with them uh, was one of, if not your absolute favorite, that I figured we needed to do it again. So they've got some questions for us like they had last time. Um, but instead of being on the same page with their questions, <laughs> like they were in the Genesis text the last time we were together, uh, they've got some questions that might just give us all some whiplash. But we're going to try and see how it goes anyway. Um, I love their questions and their, their willingness to explore this stuff with me. So... Dan and Sid, hey, it is good to have you back. Hello. Good to be here. Awesome. Okay, uh, we're going to start with Sid because ladies first. <laughs> so just tell us what's on your mind. Okay, so in general, my yeah. topic is uh, that of baptism. And so I wanted to ask first and foremost, just to clear up some things, what does baptism do or represent? Okay, um, we're going to get into some traditions here. What does baptism do or represent? Everybody in Christian circles, Orthodox Christian circles, agrees on one big baseline. And that big baseline is that baptism is a rite of initiation, brings people into the family of faith. Most of our churches will, if they have membership, some sort of formal covenant agreement with the church, uh, will insist that... Um, Anybody entering into that covenant relationship with that local congregation has to be baptized. Either previously, um, or if they haven't yet been, by the church they're entering membership covenant with. So, we would all say baptism is a sort of Christian rite of initiation. And we see this all over the world as people convert to Christianity. They sort of live in happy yet nebulous spaces with the community around them uh, until their Christian baptism. And then that community, if it's opposed to the gospel, often starts to ostracize them or, or set them aside. Um, so all of us would agree on that. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and how we understand what Romans 6, 1 through 11 is doing, coupled with a verse in Acts 2, it's Acts 2, 38, and coupled with 1 Peter chapter 3 and coupled with Mark 16, 16. And all of that teamed up with the letter to the Galatians. And Romans 10, 9, and 10 are where our traditions are going to start to split on baptism. So some of our more formal traditions, um, the Catholic Church is going to say this. Um, ironically, part of my own tradition is going to say this in um, the Church of Christ, um, that baptism is necessary as part of salvation um, because of what Romans 6 is talking about. So as a sum up for Romans 6, 1 through 11, um, Romans 6, 1 through 11 is um, presenting us with an image of baptism that says in Christian baptism, we are united with Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection. In being united with his death and resurrection, uh, the old self tainted by sin, is dead and buried. 
and this is the visual of, 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 of baptism, is it not, right? So right. buried in the water and then raised out of the water to new life is sort of the mode. Uh, Romans presents that in, in Romans 6 verse 5. We who have been united with him in a death like his will certainly be, re, be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's the paradigm. So the question is this. Does baptism actually do that uniting? For our traditions that say baptism is the mechanism that links our confession of faith and our surrender to the lordship of Jesus um, and unites us to him so that we die to the old self and are raised a new person. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, right? Everyone is a new creation then. Um, If that's the mechanism that God is using to produce that in our lives, then baptism is essential. Uh, Not just for participation in the life of the church or as a rite of initiation, but essential for salvation because it's the moment where things begin to change, fundamentally change, and we are a new creature then. Um, For our traditions that say baptism demonstrates Baptism demonstrates that spiritual reality that is taking place in the life of somebody who has, Romans 10, believed in their heart and confessed with their mouth, surrendered themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Then the metaphors of Romans chapter 6 are exactly that. They're, this is the, the metaphor, the analogy. Um, this is the visual demonstration of what is transpiring in a inward or in a spiritual capacity. So, um, what is it that it does? Well, it might depend on your tradition. Um, what is baptism? It, well, let's just, let's do the language piece for a second. Okay. Um, the Greek word baptizo means to submerge. Um, so, I, I can talk about baptism by using the Greek, well, let's do it this way. I can say baptizo. And I could very well mean uh, that somebody is taking a bath because it's to submerge in water for the purpose of washing. Um, it wouldn't be the word that I would use if I'm washing cups and plates and dishes. That's a different, different word. But if a person is being submerged in water, baptizo is the word that you use. And so it could be very general in its use, to mean something like a bath, or it could be very specific in its use, Christian baptism, the baptism of John the Baptist. Um, Basically, it means that somebody is being submerged in water. That's its most fundamental meaning. The baptism of John is to submerge people in water for repentance and to prepare the way for Jesus. The baptism of the apostles is what Jesus commands them in Matthew 28 that it is part of this series of commands that Jesus tells us to make disciples, to teach them everything he's taught, and to baptize them. And that isn't just the general use of, well, everybody should take a bath every now and then. Well, you should, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 28. And so baptism in that sense is, is a specific being submerged in water for the purposes connected to being submitted to the teaching of Jesus through the apostles in the church and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about Christian baptism, that's the one that we're talking about. It's, it's a 
being submerged in water for the purpose of being a disciple submitted to the teaching of Jesus Christ and is at least the initiation into the Christian family. Um, What does it actually accomplish in the life of the individual is something our traditions don't necessarily agree on. Some of our traditions will say, uh, without it, you're not fully saved. You might get into heaven on a technicality. And others of our traditions would say it's a demonstration of what is taking place in that person's life because of the lang- they would argue the language of Romans 6 is more symbolic. How's that? Clears it up. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So what's next then? Okay, so the second part of the question, I think with more content um, yeah. that we can dive into, is um, the issue of like a second or repeated baptism. And then is that ever justified in the life of a Christian? Okay, so... Um, well, let's do this. You like to read out of the King James. And yes. I know this is something from your tradition. And um, this is something we discovered as we were sort of chatting and preparing before the recording. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 in your translation uh, gets us to something that will at least set up this issue of second or repeated baptisms. So can, can you read in your translation Hebrews 6 verse 2? Yes, so it says, Of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Okay, Uh, so this is where the baptizo word doesn't help us much, because that's the word that's used here. Now, the English standard, which I'm looking at, takes that same baptizo root word and renders it washings in the English standard translation, because it's trying to avoid confusions of multiple baptisms. Um, Ephesians 4 has long been taken as the standard to answer whether or not Christians should be baptized more than once. Uh, And Ephesians 4, verse 4, says, There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to to the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is overall and in all and through all. Okay. Um, for as long as I can go back and read, in, in the church and in church fathers and in a whole host of other documents, and in anybody who's ever sort of commented on Ephesians 4 verse 4, uh, the one baptism is always taken as a kind of double entendre. Uh, layer number one to the one baptism is... Um, the one that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that baptism. Layer number two in that double entendre has always been, it happens once because it's a rite of initiation into the family of faith. And once in the family of faith, you're in the family of faith. And so there's no need for it to be repeated. Rebaptisms, or being um, baptized a second time is probably more a Protestant phenomenon than anybody else's. Because all of our traditions uh, in, in Christian circles would say, if you've not been validly baptized as a Christian, then there is no rebaptism to talk about. There is just your baptism. 
uh, if, however, you've been validly baptized. And for most of our Protestant traditions, it's going to be by immersion and in the formula Jesus gave us, Matthew 28, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so long as those two things are in place, it's a valid Christian baptism. And even our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church would accept my baptism because it's been done in that formula and in good conscience uh, and by immersion. And so if, if I went and was confirmed in the Eastern Orthodox Church or in the Anglican Church or in the Roman Catholic Church, none of them would baptize me again. I've already been validly baptized. Um, what tends to happen is that individuals um, who were who baptized as an infant in traditions who do that um, have come to a have come to faith um, after a long period in the younger years of their life where they didn't really feel like they owned their faith or are coming back to it in some sense um, or have shifted from having grown up Catholic or Anglican or something to that effect and become more Protestant or become a Protestant that they are then seeking what we call a believer's baptism where they have Romans 10, 9 and 10 believed in their heart, confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord submitted themselves to his lordship and now are seeking a, a baptism that is one they are choosing and initiating saying I want to be baptized for this confession of faith because it's the pattern we see in the book of Acts. People who confess Jesus Christ then go and get baptized. Baptized as an infant in the lives of a lot of these individuals feels like I didn't have a choice and I wasn't willingly submitted to it as a process of being united to Christ, Romans 6. And I now, I now want to do that as an act of my own will. Um, and, and that's kind of where we see it take place. Is it... Um, morally wrong to, or sinful in some sense, to pursue that baptism a second time? I don't think so. Um, does it violate propriety or proper procedure in the church? I, I think so. Um, baptized once is what is necessary think being baptized again does anything for you um, other than linking your um, voluntary act of the will to a faith that you currently profess. So if said if you came to me and said you wanted to be baptized again, I would ask questions. Was your first baptism valid? And if we said no, I said, well, then it's not getting baptized again. It's getting baptized for real. Yeah. If you said yes, it was valid then I would follow it up with, that's not necessary. I understand where your conscience is at, and I'd want to explore why we feel that way. But what I would probably pursue is, are we trying to come at baptism again because we think we haven't been saved and, and we're trying to step into that? Or are we looking to participate in something we feel like we haven't really participated in? Um, and I think either way, my encouragement and my, my pastoral direction would, would be one that would say, uh, I think what we're actually getting at is not a need to be saved again or redeemed again, but a need to more actively and intentionally participate in our sanctification and our growth. 
Um, it's not necessary. I don't see anything in scripture that tells us to get baptized more than once. For that matter, I don't really see any direction or instruction about Christians should only be baptized once. And it has to look exactly like this. That just doesn't necessarily exist. Paul doesn't write us like a manual. that says, hey guys, when you do baptisms, here's the thing. Um, unfortunately, we don't get that. What we do have is the Ephesians 4 text. And what we do have is the history and the teaching of the church that says the formula Jesus gave us is this from Matthew 28. And baptism was always a once thing. John's baptism, people came to him and they were baptized once by John. The apostles, Jesus, and the church baptizes people once. And so long as the formula's right, then there's no need to, to do it again. Um, many of our Protestant traditions will emphasize what we call believer's baptism. And they will argue that if the person is not actively confessing as an act of their own will, then the baptism is not valid. That's not how baptism is supposed to be done. And a lot of that comes out of the examples in the book of Acts. Um, the Philippian jailer, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and the household of Cornelius that, that Peter visits. All of those individuals have a, a will that acknowledges their confession of Jesus Christ and their sort of desire to be baptized. And so um, many of our Protestant churches will pick that up and say, if you were baptized and you had no act of the will in surrendering to that baptism, then, then you should be baptized. And it's, it's only really talked about as a re-baptism um, because of the language and the way that we're using it. But for many of those traditions, they wouldn't necessarily consider it to be valid the first time. I have a harder time with that. Um, if the formula was right, and in the case of baptizing an infant, the intentions of the parents are good for what they want for their child. I would have a hard time saying it's a not a valid baptism. I would encourage that person to pursue why they're seeking that second baptism. But I also I wouldn't necessarily say that you can't. Does that make sense? Um, as I explore that with an individual, I may say I'm not the right person to baptize you. Um, but baptized a student of ours uh, last school year who had been baptized as an infant because their family was in a tradition that baptized infants. And she was at a space where she had a confession of faith and a life of faith and this sincerity of will and said, I, this is something I need to do in the expression of my faith and the intentionality of that faith and in living in the family of faith. And as we talked, I, I understood she was coming to a place where she really felt like this was a space where she was um, surrendering her life to Jesus Christ. And this was the, the moment of that movement. And I said, okay. And so I baptized her. Um, did I do something wrong? If you ask our Catholic brothers and sisters, yeah, 100%. They'll tell me that I did. Um, think it's like a mushy gray area kind of space and we have to navigate it pastorally and carefully um, I don't think it's necessary uh, but like I said I don't think it's necessarily morally wrong to, to do that twice either does that make sense
Yeah. Follow-ups to that, or does that sort of help? No, I think that clears it up. Okay. I think that's good. Bizarre. <laughs> um, okay, without good segue that doesn't get really corny <laughs> or cheesy, uh, we're going to jump from baptism to enlightenment ideas. Uh, so, so, Dan, let's, let's get into the enlightenment mess then. Yeah, um, so a few podcasts ago, I heard your um, podcast on self-defense, and um, over my last semester, I was taking an earlier American Republic class, and so obviously, enlightenment ideas, boom, right there, constantly. Yeah. Um, So my main question to you is, are natural rights found in the philosophy of Locke, Aristotle, and others complementary to Christian ideals? I would say yes, uh, in so much as uh, Locke and Hobbes, uh, okay, maybe not Hobbes so much, Locke and Descartes, um, and some others who are going to talk about these kinds of things, um, the Stoics to a certain extent, and even Aristotle to a certain extent, acknowledge that there is a kind of fundamental equality to human persons. Uh, The Stoics are big on this, humanity is a universal brotherhood. And so um, they sort of have a, um, a basics for ethical treatment of human beings, even if they are slaves in the Roman, uh, in the Roman world, the Stoics do. Um, Aristotle has some um, virtue-based but ethical practices that need to be considered. Uh, Locke is building on those ideas from those philosophers in the past and the Christian ideals that shape his own Anglican faith as he's processing this out. And, and what those three, Aristotle, the Stoics, and Locke, all have in common is an acknowledgement of a basic human dignity. And I would say that is a fundamentally Christian idea. And it's one that's grounded in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, God makes humanity in his own image and likeness. And so what gives humanity dignity, worth, value, and a kind of imperative to honor the life and the person of another human being uh, is the fact that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God himself. So it isn't necessarily an exclusively Christian idea. The Stoics stumbled their way into it. Um, Aristotle has found it. Locke is building on it. What Locke is doing, though, is linking up the the foundation of what shapes Aristotle and the Stoics with things like Aristotle and the Stoics in the Enlightenment as we are moving out of a more overtly religious world and into a more overtly scientific world. Uh, And what Locke is saying is these Christian ideals find a kind of ultimate fruition in in things like philosophy. So what, what philosophy does is it brings us back to a rational basis that establishes in a way that the whole world can see the good things in these Christian ideas. I think that's the the thrust of what Locke is doing in a lot of ways. So I would say that what natural rights um, are doing in the Enlightenment is building on something that's present in the Scripture, um, and and that core concept is human beings are made in the image of God. So when Paul talks about the way parents treat their children or the way children should respond to their parents, or the way husbands and wives interact, or the way masters treat their servants and the way servants respond to their masters. I'm thinking of Ephesians 5 and things like that. That 
all of that is predicated on the idea that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. So that basic dignity and equality should shape everything. What the Enlightenment does is take that basic idea and say, if that's the case, then there are things in the treatment of other people that can't be violated, and we call those natural rights. Um, that uh, has, has a distinctly Christian root to it. There's a whole lot more going on with it in the Enlightenment as we move away from overtly Christian societies to societies that want to take Christian principles and be scientific societies and, and think somehow that we're surpassing or moving on to something better. But I think that's the basis of what's happening. Did I answer that first bit or is there a lingering piece I missed? Yeah, I think you answered it. Okay. Um, but adding on to yeah. the, the concept of like Lockean philosophy and like Hobbes philosophies. Um, sure. So Lockean liberty and Hobbes submission to the right governance seem to go together. But how do they relate to the yeah. submit to authority that is found in the Bible? Okay, so let's, let's pit stop here. So we've got liberty and John Locke. And we've got um, Hobbes' ideas in Leviathan <clears throat> about submission to authority and the divine right of kings. And <clears throat> okay, uh, they don't they don't seem to go hand in hand at first. Uh, I think we need to understand Hobbes because it's really easy to understand Locke in our American context, and it's really easy to misunderstand Hobbes. Um, so let's start with Hobbes. Hobbes argues that government authorities have been put in place by God. And he's pulling straight from Romans 13 when he does that, right? That's the passage that talks about God has established every human institution and authority. And then he leans into passages like 1 Peter 3 that talks about honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And he says, honor the emperor. Okay. Um, and it, so it seems to me that Hobbes sort of lives, lives in a space, and others like him in the Enlightenment live in a space that says, if God has established rule and authority on the earth, then submission to those human institutions is one of the ways we submit to God's authority. Um, submission to those institutions always goes as far as our Christian conviction lets it. In other words, if those human institutions begin to violate Christian convictions, such that if you're a Christian, you're going to be put to death, then, then Hobbes would say, maintain your Christian conviction and you're going to be executed for it. Sorry about your luck. Um, because it's not worth violating the Christian conviction to appease. But you can do so in an honorable and submitted manner. And this is where we get into this idea. And um, I think my pastor did a good job of it a few weeks ago. He was talking about marriage relationships and the idea of submission, but it works for this as well. The, the line he used is this, submission is not obedience, it's deference. It's not just blindly obeying whatever somebody tells you. It's deferring to their authority. So when human beings and Christians in particular want to say that a, a government is doing something that's inappropriate, we, we, can, we can say that. When the government says, well, you either vacate your Christian conviction or I'm going to X, um, the Christian response is to say, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, you're going to have to toss us a furnace then because we're not violating this particular conviction. That's not... It's not obedience, but it can be deferential 
in giving honor to the authority that's in place. So what, what Hobbes would argue is human submission to authority um, in a perfect world is submission to an authority that God has ordained and is doing things in the way that God would want them to be done. He tends to think that, at least my read of Hobbes, he tends to think that's what's happening with the English monarchy and the way that it's currently functioning when he writes his material. And that um, individuals who would seek to throw off that authority should check themselves just a little bit and be careful uh, because there's actually a lot of good in that English monarchy. Okay. Um, Hobbes establishes that as a good basis for us going forward. Locke comes along and says that human freedom looks like liberty. And here, I think he's drifted a little bit from biblical notions. But what he's done is establish something that's going to shape the United States. Liberty and freedom are different things. Um, In the worldview of the Bible, freedom is the power, often given by the Spirit, and the responsibility to do what is required. Um, Liberty is the ability to do what I want. And those are fundamentally different. What Paul encourages us to do in his letters is not use our freedom in Christ, our newfound power by the life the Holy Spirit provides, to indulge ourselves, engage our liberty without restraint. Uh, He says that we should use it in service to others and in service to the gospel. Locke's liberty says that human people should be free to do as they please without interference so long as what they please to do doesn't interfere with someone else. Does that make sense? Okay. So as long as we're not interfering with anybody else's rights to anything, then I, according to Locke, should have the liberty to do as I wish. Right? And that's the, that's the catch here. Um, anything... Uh, anything else in that space? Um, and I just lost my train of thought. That's fantastic. Uh, Locke's liberty says I should be able to do anything I, I, I please, so long as I'm not stepping on anybody else's ability to do as they please. That doesn't always sit as well with biblical freedom in the scripture. Um, and, and that's the sticking point, I think, with Locke and with the scripture. Let's take a break here, and we'll come back in just a second. Hey guys, we're back uh, with Dan and Sid. This is part two. Um, Took a little bit of a break there in the middle, but um, we're back. We've been talking about Locke and uh, liberty versus freedom, and that was where we, we left off. So what we've got with Enlightenment ideals in the Scripture, um, the Bible tells us to submit to authority. Um, it also outlines for us, and Romans 13 does this a bit as well, it, it outlines for us some of the things that authority should uphold. Okay, And, the, and then the Hebrew prophets come in really heavy, and we can talk about that in just a second. Um, so Christians should submit to authority. We should honor that authority. But that looks like deference, not necessarily just blind obedience. Locke's liberty takes the restraint and the responsibilities off of Christian freedom and just sort of opens it up to say, I get to do whatever I want. And that's where we run into a bit of a point of conflict. Um, I think that's our starting point. What's next? 
towards the list. Okay. Uh, or have I gotten to all of it? You've gotten to most of it. Um, okay. The portion of the submitting to authority with the Lockean Liberty and okay. Hub submission um, to the right government, it's, I think it really, when, when you boil it down, it's more of a question of what is the right governance and yep. what is the submission to authority that is found in the Bible and how do these like sure. almost not entirely secular philosophies mixed with the Bible. Okay. They yeah. Intermingle a little bit. Um, yeah. So uh, Locke is drawing ideas from scripture through other philosophies that existed and then relaying them out in the Enlightenment context of his day. Same with Hobbes, same with Descartes, same with all of these Enlightenment philosophers. <clears throat> Bonhoeffer and C.S. Lewis will speak up about right governance with the rise of the Nazi regime. <clears throat> uh, and those principles would last through things like Stalin's Russia, Mao's China, etc. Um, we could even ask questions of the, the current power structures of the United States. But, but... What we end up in a space with is this. Uh, Christians are, are called to um, submit themselves to authority and to honor the authorities that are in place. That, again, that doesn't necessarily mean obedience, but it means deference. So um, how we go about saying no matters, right? Um, What's legitimate then in terms of the use of power and authority when it comes to human government? And how do we know um, a human government isn't just making its own definitions to suit its own advantage? Uh, well, the Hebrew prophets is, is the short answer. What, what the Hebrew prophets are really critical of um, the Israelite government for, the Hebrew government for, in the period that leads up to the exile, to Babylon, is a lack of righteousness, justice, and equity. And that's sort of the threefold test to whether a current human government is legitimate in its exercise of authority. Um, <clears throat> if every human institution has been put in place by God, then those human institutions need to uphold God's ideals for human government. The prophets tell us that righteousness, justice, and equity are sort of the base standard, which means this. Uh, righteousness. Any human institution or government should produce righteousness in the people it governs. In other words, it, it should be doing something that inspires its citizens to right relationship with God. If it's not, we're entering a space where that government is not using its power and authority in the ways God would intend or design. And it's beginning to violate its place as proper. So that's layer number one. Um, justice has to do with the relationship, the relationships that exist within that power dynamic. So that's everything from citizen to citizen relationships and citizen to government relationships. Government within government. So in the United States, we have a, a threefold system the way those branches interact with each other and then the way the government interacts with federal government interacts with state government and the way those structures interact with citizens is all part of this justice as well. So justice has to do with the people to people interactions, government to people, people to government, people to each other, government to government. Righteousness has to do with our interactions as people with God. 
So what God intends is that um, human power structures uphold righteousness, justice. Equity has to do with what is right and good and um, in step with the equality of persons. So um, the system of government and the interactions within that system aren't disposed to favoritisms. And um, justice isn't subverted for the rich because they have means that would be inequitable. It's not uh, withheld from the poor, um, but it's adequately and equally applied and distributed. And so equity isn't equality of possession or um, wealth. That's the communist ideals, not necessarily the biblical one. Uh, Equity in scripture as an ideal is that um, the principles of righteousness and justice aren't subverted on the basis of status. And that status isn't a contributing factor. So if we have a government that is overturning these ideals, then we have a government that does not seem to be living up to the sort of mandate of being um, on par with the way God wants government to work. What's the Christian response to a government that's violating that? Well, welcome to the moral problem of the 20th and 21st century. Um, Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany solved the problem in two phases. Phase number one was to invest his life in the life of what, what was called the Confessing Church. Because Hitler sort of hijacks the German church as a state entity. Bonhoeffer devotes his life ministry during uh, the Nazi regime to what's called the Confessing Church. It's a group of Christians uh, intending to live out the purpose and mission of the church as the body of Christ in Germany um, without entanglements with the German state in order to accomplish the kingdom of God and the gospel purposes. That's phase one of Bonhoeffer's press. Okay, so Hitler's government and the church in Germany isn't upholding these ideals. But my Christian responsibility is to continue to uphold those ideals. Um, So the the, the first response to Hitler's invalid use of power and authority is to say, double down on the life and mission of the church. The second response from Bonhoeffer is to participate in what are attempts to assassinate Hitler. Uh, And that's where this gets a little challenging. Um, because the passages in Scripture, like Romans 13 and like 1 Peter 3, that, that ask us to honor the emperor and the authority structures that God's put in place, don't say anything about subverting those power structures. <laughs> um, to be fair, Paul and Peter live in an imperial day of the Roman world where the ideas of basic human rights and basic human dignities aren't quite the same as 20th century Europe, post-enlightenment 20th century Europe. So in that regard, Bonhoeffer's world and Paul's world are, are different worlds. But how then do I apply the principles of Scripture to those cases? Well, if we ask Bonhoeffer, he says, we submit to the powers of human institutions and government because God has put them in place, Romans 13. Uh, insofar as they operate like legitimate uses of authority. 
and they can and should be resisted when they when they cease to have that kind of legitimate God-honoring base, or they fail to fulfill their obligations. How we resist them needs to be commensurate to the way in which they're falling short of God's intentions. Okay, Hitler is systematically exterminating people. (laughs) That doesn't automatically give us moral grounds to assassinate Hitler. Hitler's not open to any kind of correction or adjustment. And the only way to adjust, stop, or redeem, repair, restore any kind of good governance in Nazi Germany is to get rid of the Nazi regime. Well, then you're, you're left with really one option, and that's where Bonhoeffer lands. Um, it's, I think it's harder in Bonhoeffer's shoes to make those kinds of statements. It's easier for somebody like C.S. Lewis, because Lewis will say the same kinds of things as Bonhoeffer. Hitler's invalidated his right to authority by manipulating the process that put him in authority, by um, the way he's gone about conducting his authority. And so Hitler's claims to real power and authority, he's shredded. He doesn't actually own. Those are, these are seriously problematic. Nobody's fussy with C.S. Lewis for saying that the right response to Nazi Germany is to bring down the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer's position is the one that gets tricky because he lives within it. So what is the Christian response? Well, Lewis seems to say the Christian response for Britain is to oppose Hitler's regime and bring it down in order to reestablish a regime that'll, um, that'll handle power the way God intends for people to handle power when they have it. Bonhoeffer says the same thing, but from within Nazi Germany. Is it ethically acceptable for Christians to participate like Bonhoeffer participated? That's debatable. Um, can, Can Christians be revolutionaries and bring down the, the power they're supposed to be submitted to? Well, Daniel and, and the three Hebrew friends in the fiery furnace would say, no, I hold my Christian conviction and I let what will happen as a result of that just sort of take place and happen. Bonhoeffer says, yes, because other people's lives are at stake, not just my own. And that's where those principles from the self-defense piece kick in. And Bonhoeffer says, innocent Jews and uh, others who help them, particularly Christians, are going to suffer unjustly at the hands of somebody who is behaving without righteousness, without justice, and without equity. And that person has to be stopped in pursuits of righteousness, justice, and equity. So Bonhoeffer's argument is, in order to care, James 1.27, for the widow and the orphan, in order to um, take care of the lives of those who can't take care of themselves, which is a basic Christian mandate the church has held throughout the history of the church. In, in order to do that, we, we have to overthrow this regime. It has to go away. And the only way that that's going to happen, unfortunately, in Bonhoeffer's case, is you've got to get rid of the, the guy at the top of the pile. And that's his logic that leads him to a space where he says, I can participate in subverting the Nazi government. And Bonhoeffer and his entire family is actually actively involved in subverting Nazi Germany. It's what leads to his execution. He's found out. Um, 
but that's, but that's his logic. Uh, from the outside looking in, C.S. Lewis argues the same thing. It is, it is Britain's moral and Christian responsibility as a distinctly Christian nation to stand up against the abuses of power and authority, um, the ungodly and, and unrighteous, unjust, and unequitable uses of power that Hitler has put into place in Nazi Germany. And, and we have to bring it down. And that means destroying it and probably killing Hitler in the process. So what's the Christian response? Um, squishy, I think. It, it feels really squishy to me. Um, I will say this. Uh, I'm, I am grateful for the American Revolution and what it produced. The position of the colonists in revolt against Britain as a distinctly Christian revolt feels less justifiable than Bonhoeffer's. Christian revolt in Nazi Germany. Uh, that um, I need to I need to wrestle with that. I think now that it's been established, all right, there's no changing it. Um, I'm not advocating we go resubmit ourselves to the British monarchy. Absolutely not. Uh, no, I'm I'm too American for that. Um, but what I will say is this: that Christians have a responsibility to uh, honor the authority that's in place. And I think that's what we're getting at with this idea of submission. Um, but, but like we've said, that honoring that authority doesn't necessarily mean blindly obeying that authority. Um, I would say that layer number one is if it only has to do with me, um, then I should sort of take my cues from Roman or Revelation 12, 11 and not love my life so much as to shrink back from being persecuted for my faith or dying for it, if that's what it requires. But when it begins to involve the lives and well-being of other people, then I have a responsibility to stand up for righteousness, justice, and equity. But only insofar as my Christian ethics will let me carry it. So I, I still can't go into a space where I'm murdering. And this is effectively what Bonhoeffer is trying to justify. Is assassinating Hitler murder? Or is it morally justifiable because of because it's in defense of self and others at that point? Uh, okay. We have to make those cases when we're presented with those historic circumstances. And I think that's what Bonhoeffer's doing um, when, he, when he does that. The Enlightenment ideals present us with natural rights as a way to say, here's something that Western society can agree on that forms a basis of valid government that isn't going to be as contentious as the principles found in Christian scripture, but that everybody in a sort of scientific community could agree on. Human beings deserve this kind of treatment, and so these are basic rights and liberties that should belong to human persons. That's what the Enlightenment is establishing. And if we just sort of agree on that as a starting point, then anything that violates it needs to be adjusted or needs to be taken down and started over. Um, and the consequences of all of those ideals is the fact that everybody can kind of agree on those basic principles, but everybody's going to disagree on how we bring them into fruition, thus all of the French revolutions, right? Thus the colonists' revolt against the British crown. Um, in, an, in an ironic twist, it's the, that kind of agreement on these are basic human rights principles and basic forms and structures of government that would make those possible 
while it brings about revolts in France and in the United States, it's ironically what initially unifies all of the, the Germans <laughs> together under one form of government. So um, I think what the Enlightenment is doing is pulling stuff from the scripture through the Enlightenment strainer into a space that says whether you agree with Christian scripture or you don't agree with Christian scripture, these are all principles we can agree on, so here's our starting point. And then the Western world has used that as a justification for is it a legitimate government? Is it not a legitimate government? And, and when it's fallen into the category of not a legitimate government, the Western world has felt compelled to oppose it or bring it down or both for that matter. How's that? Pretty good. Okay. Pretty good. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think that gets us to a space um, that's hopefully a healthy one. Uh, again, Dan had said thanks for being with us. This was fun. <laughs> and uh, we'll do this again. Uh, thanks for being with us. And we'll see you next time we're on the podcast.